This week's passage comes from Matthew 24, verses 1 to 35. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for pregnant women who are pr- for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as, not, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another." From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is God's word. Let's pray together as we prepare to look at this exciting passage of Scripture. 
Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you that you have made yourself known. And it's you that we want to know this morning. It's your face we want to see. It's your word we want to hear. Thank you for giving us the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us by your spirit. And so, Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, ready our hearts to hear your word and to be changed by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. For as far back as you go in history, people have always had an intense fascination with how the world is going to end. Uh, As early as 2800 BC, the Assyrians were certain that it was near. Uh, An ancient uh, Assyrian tablet reads, There are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents, and every man wants to write a book, and the end of the world is evidently approaching. That was their, their, their sign. You know, the ancient Mayans had predicted uh, that the end would come on December 21st, 2012, according to some people who read their ancient Mayan things. Modern scientists warn us that at some point the sun is going to go rogue and become a red giant and basically consume us all. And of course, all of this has found a happy home in the imaginations of pop culture. One author writes that pop culture has shown us a million ways the world could end. There are slow-moving viral outbreaks, zombie takeovers, Nuclear wars and alien invasions and robot mutinies and environmental cataclysms. I mean, the the list is really endless. And there's even a video game at Chuck E. Cheese where only you can stop the world from certain annihilation by warding off the alien attack. Though, if you have enough tokens. Otherwise, we're out of luck. So, you know, how's it all going to end? How's it going to end? We can't get enough of that question. Our passage this morning in Matthew begins, interestingly enough, with the disciples asking a similar question of Jesus. So go ahead and find your way uh, back to Matthew chapter 24, if if you're not still there. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 829. If you were here with us last week, you'll remember that uh, Jesus has been in the temple area in Jerusalem... And he's been having pretty intense debates with the religious leaders, uh, and particularly the Pharisees and scribes last week. And, and those debates uh, have come to a climax. This, these are the final days of Jesus and his ministry unfolding, the, the last few days before his crucifixion. And these debates came to a climax in chapter 23 last week with Jesus' harsh condemnation of the Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees who saw themselves as the teachers and guides of Israel, but who were in reality passing out contaminated medicine to God's people. their, Their teaching was laced with hypocrisy, such that whoever followed it would be killed. Uh, They would make their followers twice a child of hell as they were, as Jesus put it. Jesus was not shy about condemning them for their false teaching 
exposing their hypocrisy for what it was. And yet, as that passage came to a conclusion at the end of chapter 23, we noted the pain that was in his voice as he said those things. The pain for what it meant for them and for what it meant for Jerusalem, that God's judgment was now going to come. That the city of David, the home of God's temple, would soon be desolate. Jesus' heart was broken over that. As judgment for Israel's unrelenting rebellion against their covenant God and as fulfillment of God's promises that he was going to dwell with his people, not through a building ultimately, but through his son by his spirit. As we just saying, Christ is the cornerstone of that true temple. So as fulfillment of those things, Jerusalem and the temple were soon to be destroyed. That's where the chapter landed last week. And so when our chapter this morning opens in Matthew 24 with Jesus' disciples kind of marveling over the buildings of the temple and saying, wow, isn't that cool? We want to be paying careful attention to what Jesus is going to say next because we know that it's not looking good for these buildings. So look again at verse 1 with me. Jesus left the temple... He was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It all looks pretty, but it's not going to last. And those comments spark an unsettling curiosity in the disciples, one that causes them to ask Jesus uh, the same question that in one form or another has been asked throughout all of history. How's it going to end? Verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? And of the close of the age. How's it going to end, Jesus? Now, when this question comes up today, apart from the pop culture, you know, draw and so on uh, of movies and films, when this question is raised today uh, about the end, the responses that we find usually uh, end up at one of two extremes either apathy or obsession. Those are, those are usually the two extremes where people interact with this question. So apathy, which is kind of a, a who cares attitude, um, whether it's out of disbelief in God and the whole deal or, or distraction by the world or even kind of a disillusionment that comes from Jesus' continued delay, uh, perhaps even the kind of scoffing that we see in Second Peter 3, verse 4. You know, people saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He says he's coming. Nothing seems to be changing. I'm beginning to have my doubts. That kind of disbelief attitude. So, so whatever the case is, apathy is basically that the promises of Jesus' return make no functional impact on my life day to day. That's apathy. And I dare suggest that that's probably where most of us are with this kind of question. Now, the other extreme is obsession, which takes all sorts of fun shapes. 
from doomsday predictions by you know secular uh, folks to attempts by religious people to kind of chart in scrupulous detail how the events of the world and the future are going to play out. Uh, you know, we end up treating the Bible kind of like this secret code book, and it needs to be cracked. And so we read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, and we're trying to make connections between a, obscure prophecies in the Old Testament and modern-day events in Russia or the Middle East and so on. And, and, and it's that kind of obsession that, that led people like Harold Camping to predict the end of the world three times at least. You know, first it was September 6, 1994, and then when that didn't happen, it was May 21st, 2011. And then when that didn't happen, it was October 21st, 2000. And, and you see, you know, that's obsession. You get the picture. When the disciples ask this question, however, they do not do so out of fear or obsession, but with wonder and hope. That's what drives them to ask this question, wonder at the implications for Jerusalem and the temple, which have for so long been this symbol of God's beauty and presence with his people, and now that's going to change. Jerusalem's no longer going to be the center of God's kingdom. Now that the true cornerstone Jesus is here, and there's wonder at that, and yet there's also this hope, knowing that the royal unveiling of Jesus and his kingdom is going to mark the close of this age, and therefore the fullness of the age to come, the new creation. There's wonder and hope. Now, uh, when they ask Jesus about his coming, we need to slow down and understand a little bit more carefully what exactly they're asking him about. They're not really at this point asking when he's going to return. Uh, Not yet. They don't understand the fact that he's about to die and rise again, let alone come back at some later unknown date. They, They will get that eventually, but right now in the story, they don't have a category for that. That's not what they're asking him. What they're asking is when his royal appearing will take place. The word translated coming here is a Greek word parousia. Uh, which certainly can and very often does refer to the return of Jesus in the end. That's what the word ultimately uh, points to. But more generally, it means a royal appearance. And so, for instance, in the Roman world, if the emperor was going to pay a state visit to a colony, the, uh, they would, the word that they would use to describe that royal appearing was this very same word, parousia. So it's a declaration of authority and glory that this is the king who's really in charge of this area. It was his royal appearing. That's the same word that the disciples are using and asking Jesus about here. When will Jesus' royal appearing come? When will the moment come when he shows up and there's no longer any question about who's really in charge? That's that's what they want to know. When everyone will acknowledge his authority and his kingship. The time when, you know, according to the hope of the Old Testament, that this evil age will therefore come to a close and give way to the fullness of his kingdom. There will be no more opposition. 
It's, it's the promise of what the Old Testament looked forward to in the new heavens and new earth in, in Isaiah. The, the fullness of God's kingdom, the promised new creation where death will be swallowed up, where the, the tears will be wiped away, where David's son will sit on the throne forever and rule in justice and peace, and all nations will see God's glory and give him the praise he deserves. That's what they want to know. When will your kingdom come in full? When will your royal appearing happen and the close of this evil age will give way to the age to come see the end of the world for the disciples or for uh, ancient israel and for christians today is not really an end but a new beginning it's the final beginning of what the world was meant to be this age to come all the hope of heaven and jesus's royal appearing is going to usher that in so how are we going to know when that's really here? What will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? Now, if you look at, again at their question in verse 3, you'll notice that there's actually two parts to the question. First, when will these things be? That is the destruction of Jerusalem you just told us about, how one stone's not going to be left on another. When will that be? And then second, what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age, the question we just talked about, his royal appearing. Now, the disciples' assumption is that the answer to both parts of that question is the same. That when Jesus shows, that when Jerusalem falls, Jesus will show up and the new creation will be ushered in immediately. That's their assumption, that this is all going to happen at one time. But that's an assumption that Jesus wants to correct. And that's really what launches us into his description throughout the rest of this chapter. They're assuming that when, when Jerusalem comes apart, Jesus' is, is royal appearing will happen. Jesus wants them to know that, yes, Jerusalem will fall, and yes, I will come, but they will not be at the same time. In fact, there will be a season of suffering and at times, very intense persecution, including the destruction of Jerusalem, that will last all, that will begin during your very generation and last all the way up until I return. And only after that season will I come in power and glory. So Jesus is the true king. He is their only hope of salvation. But the fullness of his, his royal victory will not be complete until his return in the end. And he wants them to know this, that there's this gap between the fall of Jerusalem and his, his return, his royal appearing, marked by great tribulation, so that when that suffering and turmoil hits them in the face, and when false teachers rise up and try and lead them astray, that they won't be caught off guard, that they won't follow that deception. Look at, look at verses 4 through 8 with me. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. 
So you're expecting me to come in glory. That's going to happen at some point. But first, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be uh, people who, who rise up and try and deceive you. There's going to be international turmoil and, and uh, natural disasters. But Jesus says, see that you are not alarmed by that turmoil, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. It's funny how we often use these verses here to talk about how close the end must be. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's more earthquakes these days in the news. The end must be coming. When What Jesus is saying here is exactly the opposite. All that stuff's going to happen, but that doesn't mean the end has come yet. That's what he's actually saying here. And so don't be alarmed by that. Don't get ahead of yourselves. Wait for my royal appearing. You're not going to miss it. That's what he says later. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So you can think of it, this fallen world that's been corrupted by sin is pregnant with God's new creation. It's pregnant with the kingdom to come. But it has to go through the pain and turmoil of labor first. And, and as the world prepares itself for God's new kingdom, there's international strife. Kings, uncomfortable with the fact that the true king's going to show up. There's, there's cosmic natural strife, but all of it is getting ready for the time when Jesus will appear and all things will be set right. So this, this turmoil will happen. Don't be alarmed. And understand that, that the unsettling and agitation of this world also means persecution and tribulation for my followers. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then, then the end will come. It's not uncommon um, for people to read this, this chapter in Matthew as though Jesus is talking only about things that are going to happen in the future. Uh, what we sometimes refer to as the end times is a phrase you'll hear people say. And that's one way to read it as exclusively future. But I don't think it pays careful enough attention to the context in the passage itself. Jesus is answering the disciples' question, showing them what's going to happen soon so that when his arrival doesn't happen yet, they're not caught off guard by the suffering that's about to hit them the tribulation that they will find themselves in, something that Jesus says is going to begin in your generation, in verse 34. In other words, if we were to hang a theological category on it, Jesus is telling them that what we often refer to as the end times and the tribulation that comes with it is already upon them. It's already begun, and it will continue until 
his return. Now, there are lots of different ideas about these kinds of things. And, you know, it's okay to have a diversity of opinion on them. But if you look at the New Testament and how it uses the phrase last days or last times, it consistently uses that phrase to refer to the time period between Christ's first and second coming. In other words, the end times, as the Bible uses that phrase, have already begun. They're they're not yet full, but they have started and they will carry on up until the time of Christ's return when things will, you know, no doubt escalate. But again, to hang a theological category on it, it's what theologians call inaugurated eschatology. That's a fun word to throw around and, and, you know, at a party or something like that. But an easier way to think of it is already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. So the, the trouble that will mark the latter days has already begun, but it's not yet complete. And Jesus wants them to understand that. Because if they don't, uh, if, if we don't understand that, if we assume that as soon as I follow Jesus, everything is awesome from here out, and, and, or if, if the disciples assume that, that when Jerusalem falls, the full, full glory of the kingdom is going to spring forth, if we don't get that there is this period of suffering for God's people, then we run the risk of the trials of this world overshadowing the hope of our Savior. We run the risk of of being caught off guard, deceived by false messiahs, disoriented by all of the turmoil around us, derailed by persecution, and all the while forgetting that we have a job to do. The, The reason that Jesus is delayed is because there's gospel work that still needs to happen. Jesus wants them to know that things are going to get rough, but that doesn't mean the end has come yet. Because if they don't understand that, they risk being caught off guard. And I mean, if we step back from it and think about that, what happens to us when the troubles of this world overshadow the hope that we have in our Savior? What happens? You know, any kind of trouble, financial... Financial trouble. So when the mortgage becomes bigger than Jesus, or relational troubles, when, when the divorce becomes bigger than Jesus, or, or physical troubles, illness, death, persecution for our faith, when all of the different ways that this world ar- reminds us that Jesus has not yet come in power and glory, what happens to our hearts when We lose sight of the promise of his victory in the end, and all we can see is the trouble right in front of us. Well, if you are anything like me, the first thing that happens is that we become insecure and self-protective. When all I can see is that trouble, my temptation, my first default is is to circle the wagons. To, to bolster my defenses. When, when life no longer goes my way and I can no longer predict what's going to come, that's what I do. And I try to then protect whatever I still can call my own and, and keep all of you away from it because I'm insecure. I don't know what's going to happen and I don't have control anymore. That's how I respond, which makes me blind to the needs of others because all I can see is this. I'm barely keeping my head above water. You might say... In the language of 
of verse 12 that our love grows cold. We're just focused on ourselves. And then we try to take control. That's the next thing I do. I get insecure and self-protective, and then I try and take control, take matters into our own hands, become captains of our own destiny. In other words, we become our own savior. We become our own savior. I'm going to get myself out of this. Or else we look to someone who seems like they're in control, and we treat them as our savior. That's the other thing. Someone who comes along making promises of a better world, of a new hope, you know, justice and peace, if you will follow them and get on board. It's a false messiah, to put it in biblical categories. It's, that is an alternative savior. Someone who makes promises that only Jesus has the authority and power to fulfill. And we throw our lot in with those folks. Now, it would be tempting to laugh at that kind of idea if it wasn't such a common problem today. Uh, but our, our sinful hearts are drawn to these kinds of leaders. You know, Someone comes along promising all of the blessings of heaven with none of the pain of the cross. I mean, where do I sign up? I want that. I want to get out of this, this, this trouble. And so our hearts are just naturally drawn to those kinds of people. Political revolutionaries, religious gurus, the stuff that, that fills the daytime television on the religious channels. But if you find yourself talking more about your favorite leader or teacher than about Jesus, or if your favorite leader or teacher talks more about themselves than about Jesus, such that they're the hero of all of their sermons, there's a problem. There's a problem there. You may be dealing with a, an alternative savior, a false messiah. And when we throw our hat in with people like that, then in our insecurity, we tend to demonize anybody else who doesn't fall in line. We found our new savior. What's your problem? Why don't you get on board? In Jesus' language, we betray one another. We hate one another. Because we've got these alternative saviors warring against themselves and our allegiance is tied up with one of them. But if we can't take control ourselves or if we don't find somebody who, who seems to be in control, then usually we look for an escape. That's the next thing that happens. Something that I, at least I can feel like I'm in control of this. If I can't control what my finances are doing, maybe I can at least control this little corner of my life. And I find this little escape that gives me this you know, relief or satisfaction, even if it's just for a moment. We fall away from Jesus and into unhealthy practices or, or addictive patterns. We escape by turning to food, either eating too much of it or not enough of it becomes our outlet, our relief. We turn to entertainment, to fantasizing, to cutting, to pornography, to abuse, to, to alcohol or drugs. Just anything that's going to relieve the pain that is our life. Even if it's just for a minute. Even if it, just something that makes me feel again like I'm actually in charge of something. I'm, I'm king of that little corner of my life, and that's where I go. 
And so lawlessness increases. I'm not interested in following God. I'm interested in preserving my fragile kingdom where I can find my little bit of solace and escape. And once again, love grows cold. If we are caught off guard by the turmoil of this world such that we no longer see the true Savior and we're running around after all these alternative saviors, there's a problem. There's a problem. We cannot afford to be taken off guard. There are a hundred ways to go off of the path of faithfulness to God. There are thousands of alternative saviors we can turn to. Every one of them will let us down. What is needed is to trust the true Savior, even when life falls apart. To keep our eye on him and his promises so that we can endure to the end. That's what is needed. What is needed is to persevere against the trials fueled by the hope that we have in Jesus, that he will, in fact, come in victory, and therefore focused on the work he's given us to do in the meantime, to make the gospel known. What's needed is a steadfast, patient hope in Christ's coming victory that frees us and fuels us to persevere amid the trials of these last days. And if we don't understand that there will be this season of intense trial, it's going to be hard to persevere because our expectations are going to be in all the wrong places. And if you're the disciples in this story, then you need to understand that that season of trial includes the destruction of Jerusalem, but that Jesus' royal appearing will not happen at the exact same time. So, When you see Jerusalem falling, it's not time to party, it's time to run. That's what he clarifies in verses 15 to 21. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, that's the temple, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down and take what's in his house, Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath when people are less likely to help you get out of town. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, Jesus uses a phrase here, the abomination of desolation. Uh, comes from the book of Daniel. And when he mentions that, again, there there are different ideas on what in the world Jesus is talking about here. Uh, And and oftentimes that's kind of thought to be something that is, again, in the future. And from Jesus' vantage point, it is. But from our vantage as readers of this story today, it's very much in the past. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. When the abominating sacrilege stands in the holy place, the temple, and it's destroyed. It's the same thing he talked about back in verse 2, when not one brick's going to be left on another. Something that happened clear back in 70 AD. But he's describing that destruction of the temple with language borrowed from Daniel. 
the abomination of desolation, which in that book describes kind of an atrocious act of defilement on God's holy place. So the temple's holy. It's sacred. You can't bring anything unclean into it. It's set apart for God. But when pagan nations try and conquer Jerusalem, one of the ways they kind of flex their muscles and show that your God's no longer in control is by defiling Israel's temple. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes did in, in 167 BC. When, when he, he was a Greek king, when he conquered Jerusalem, one of the things he did was bring in a pig, an unclean animal, and sacrifice it in God's temple. It was an abomination that defiled the temple. Daniel talks about that, foretells it. That same kind of defiling sacrilege is what's going to happen when Rome shows up and tears the temple down in 70 AD. Jesus uses the language here. Luke gives us the interpretation outright. In Luke 21, verse 20 through 21, he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. When Rome shows up, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart, and so on. So Jerusalem will fall. And I will return, says Jesus, but not at the same time. And so when you see Rome marching up, don't wait around for the fireworks and the celebration of my coming. Get out of town. Run. Because you still have work to do. This is not the end. That's what Jesus is telling them. And there will be other severe trials during this season of tribulation, during this time between Jesus' first coming and his return. But not without limit. Not without limit. Verse 22 says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus will not let it go on uh, continuously. He will return. He will bring a close to that tribulation. And he will arrive in royal victory. But among those many trials that they face, Jesus keeps warning them about one in particular. He's already said it twice earlier in the chapter. And now he goes back to it again. And it's this warning against false messiahs. Not just people who claim to be a kind of savior, but people who claim to be the savior, Jesus, the true Messiah. That's what their claim is. Who claim to be Jesus himself in his royal appearing, in his second coming. So verses 23 to 28. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, I want you to not be caught off guard. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You will not miss it when it happens. Wherever the corpse is, however, there the vultures will gather. And that last line is kind of interesting. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Growing up in Nebraska, it's not uncommon if you're driving down 
the interstate or country road to see a circle of turkey vultures, you know, zeroing in on some carcass they've discovered. Yeah, it's kind of gross to think about. But, you know, uh, and, and that's the picture here. That's what false messiahs do in a fallen world. They don't see Jesus' delay as an opportunity to get busy with the proclamation of the gospel. They see Jesus' delay as their chance to make a move for his throne. And the best way they can do that is by convincing others that that's who they are. They prey on those beaten down in the turmoil of this season and make their advance claiming to be Jesus, having come again. Again, for most of us, that's a pretty hard pill to swallow. You know, Jesus, if somebody showed up in this room saying that they were Jesus, I'm pretty sure we'd be quite skeptical. But it's, it's a lie that many people buy. I mean, you think of the Jehovah's Witness following. A pillar of that teaching is that Jesus already came back in 1914. Not bodily, but his invisible presence came back, and now he runs his kingdom through their organization. That's the cornerstone of Jehovah's Witness belief. Or you take... Uh, the World Mission Society Church of God. Uh, many of you may not have heard of them. I've met them many times in Boston. They're very active here. It's a cult that was founded in Korea in 1964 when a man named An Song Hong, I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but An Song Hong claimed to be the second coming Christ and his wife claims to be uh, God the Mother. She now runs the organization. Sounds goofy. It's 820,000 followers strong. People buy into this stuff. I've been stopped by folks on the T. They've come to my door. My wife's been stopped in the parking lot at the grocery store by people asking, have you ever heard of God the Mother? Maybe some of you have had people ask you that same question. That's this cult. They're very active. And, And so... Jesus says, don't be led astray when people come up and say things like that to you. If you've ever read The Last Battle by Lewis, you know, you think of the monkey or the ape, you know, who's got Aslan in the shed. He's got the donkey covered in a lion skin. That's Aslan in there, and I'm his mouthpiece. And that's exactly what these kinds of people do. Don't be led astray. When Jesus says, when I appear in victory and power and glory, nobody's going to miss it. Okay, that's verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's not going to be invisible or spiritual or privileged information for, for just a few. It is going to be bodily, visible, obvious, and glorious. And no one will mistake him. No one will mistake him. He elaborates on this in verses 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign or the banner, if you will, of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus is using a lot of Old Testament imagery here to describe his return. 
uh, and the significance of his royal appearing, his coming. The sun and the moon darken, the stars falling. That's Isaiah 13. That's imagery of cosmic justice happening. He uses language from Daniel again to describe the victory and authority that he has as the Son of Man. Daniel seven thirteen to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus shows up, it's end of debate about who really gets the glory, the power, and the honor. All doubts about who's in charge will be put to rest. The nations will see King Jesus, and those who rejected him will mourn for having turned away from the true king. And Jesus will gather his people from every corner of earth, and his heavenly new creation will be complete. It's a glorious hope. Jesus is the true king. He is the only hope of salvation. But his royal victory will not be complete until he returns in the end. We need to understand that if we're going to endure, if we're going to face the trials and tribulations that will mark this season of waiting, if we're going to be faithful to our call. Jesus summarizes in verses 32 to 35. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, these these signs of turmoil and trial, you know that he is near at the very gates. He could come at any time. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. These signs, this turmoil and tribulation that points to the nearness of his coming will begin during that generation's life. Doesn't mean it will be completed during that generation's life. Sometimes folks read this verse and they think that everything in this chapter was supposed to have happened uh, in the lifetime of the disciples. I don't think that's what it's saying. But all of those signs will begin and launch, and they will continue up until his return happens. Which means that if Jesus was near then, he's near today. It means that his royal appearing could come at any time. He has promised he will return. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Do we live in light of his imminent coming? What do we do in the meantime? What do we do? We endure through suffering, clinging to Jesus as our Savior, not turning to the to the myriad of alternative saviors that we're tempted to hold on to, we cling to the true Savior, Jesus. And we remember that as long as he delays, we have work to do. We have a gospel message to proclaim. It's tempting to scoff at the idea of Jesus' return the longer it takes for him to get back. 
And again, that, that's something that was already happening in that first generation. Second Peter 3, 4 again. Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is getting old. I don't think it's really going to happen. But Jesus' delay is not a failure to keep his promises. It is mercy and patience and his desire for more people to come to know him. That's the cause of his delay. And so as we close, I want to read 2 Peter 3, 8 through 15. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and be at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Count the patience of our Lord, his delay, as salvation. That's what he wants to have happen in the meantime. So as long as Jesus delays and we continue to face severe trials, may each difficulty we experience be a quiet reminder that there's still work to do. Each difficulty, every trial, every frustration we experience be a quiet reminder, okay, Jesus isn't back yet. There's still work to do. There's still a gospel to be made known, lives to be saved, nations to be reached, and then the end will come.